us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. TreeCR Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Burung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to the elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. Oh, yeah. to late 30 a.m. Highly double. Good morning, everyone, and hope you're all doing well on this lovely morning. I'm not sure if you can hear from my voice, but I'm quite nervous as I'm presenting alone for the first time today, but hope everything goes well. So we've got a lot for you this morning. First up, we spoke to Helen Gibbons, Director of the Early Child Education at the United Workers' Union last Friday, discussing the recent Early Child Education Workers' Rally called Big Steps and the demands of the workers and their importance in society. Then we're going to take a listen to something from the Diaspora Blues team where they spoke to Alia Ahmed, a Pakistani-Australian, about the relief work done for the floods in Pakistan that washed away villages and thousands of people had lost their lives and also why Australia needs to do more on this. And after that, we're going to be finishing up with... Um, sorry, not finishing up. Move on to a piece by Jacob on a disability transport. And so what we'll be doing there is, um, yeah, talking about a segment of an interview that Jacob did. And finally, we'll move on and wrap up the segment with um, something from from City Limits, where Kevin interviews Dr. John Stone, a senior lecturer and researcher in transport planning at the University of Melbourne, and Elise Cunningham, coordinator of the Sustainable Cities Collective at Friends of the Earth. They discuss some of John's research into improving the frequency and connectivity of buses in Melbourne's West, and the models that are sustainable, accessible, and financially efficient. They also talk about the Better Buses campaign run by Friends of Earth, Melbourne's Sustainable Cities Collective, bringing this research together with personal stories and community organising to bring public transport in the West up to scratch. And the Better Buses is advocating for firm commitments for bus network improvements ahead of this year's November state election. So yes, it's an awful lot. Um, before we head on to the talks, we've got a song for you. This is by Easy and DJ Austin Lad, this is They Don't Care, a Yoruba mix. Yeah. 
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and that was They Don't Care, a Yoruba mix by Izzy and DJ Osenlad. And now we move on to our first part of the show, where I spoke to Helen Gibbons, the Director of Early Child Education at the United Workers' Union, chatting about the recent Early Childhood Educators' Rally. The action has been called through Big Steps, and the workers call on the government to value early learning by raising educators' wages. We also looked at the demands of the workers and their importance as they are the backbone of our society. So how was the action that day and how did you feel about it? The action was the, the largest action that early educators have ever taken in this country, all across the country, in every city. Um, educators walked off the job, they closed their services um, or were left a skeleton crew behind, walked off the job and rallied um, together to call for reform of the early education sector. Uh, and it was a really uh, powerful moment to see so many educators do all of the hard work that it takes to organise a shutdown, which, you know, that's hundreds, thousands of conversations with parents about the importance of making a stand and calling for reform in the sector. That was lovely. And what were the main demands of um, the early child educators when uh, they were being striked for that day? Early educators had three demands. The first one was um, pay us what we're worth and give us a reason to stay in the sector. They can be paid as little as $24 an hour and they're leaving in droves. We've got enormous shortages of educators all across the country because they don't feel valued and they don't feel that they're being paid appropriately. Their second demand was to value early education in the same way that we value school education. Little children are no less important than older children and the people who work with them should be valued in the same way that the people that work with older children are. And the final demand was to put children before profit. Too often we see uh, profit being put before children and there's a lot of money being made in some parts of early education and that money should be being spent on children and educators. I see. And how had Big Steps, the, the, the action, how had it helped in contributing to that cause? It's really important that early educators are a loud voice in any discussion about what should happen in early education in this country. Often we focus just on parents and return to work and offsetting parents' fees, but there's uh, over 100,000 early educators working in long day care and they need to be a really powerful voice at the table about what the sector should look like. They are the experts, they are the ones that work in it every day and it's really important that they, their voice is heard and that's one of the reasons they talk to the streets. We need real reform. We need reform that listens to educators and centres children and educators in the centre of the decision-making and policy-making. I see. And why was it so necessary for this to particularly call on the government to hear your voices? We have educators leaving the sector in droves and what that means is that parents can't get places for their children and children are being turned away. And this is a situation that hasn't happened overnight. It's been a decade of neglect from the previous government and we've ended up in this situation where educators feel so demoralised working in the sector that they're leaving. Uh, it was really important that when the government starts to think about you know, their new policies for early education, 
that they don't just think about parents and making it cheaper for parents. They've actually also got a crisis about workforce and that they need to address that crisis. Otherwise, there's no early education without early educators. I see. Yeah, it's quite important that um, because early child educators are the backbones of of, her, of our society, and without that, there there's there won't be education for the kids, and the womb, and parents also. Even if they can pay or not pay, it doesn't matter because there's no teachers. That's right. I see. And okay, so just to um, wrap this up, since we're already at our last question, what's next for the union members, and what what are you guys going to do? Well, we got a commitment out of the federal government um, last week when we rallied across the country that they would hold urgent roundtables with early educators. Um, and that's a really important next step because that's educators face-to-face with the politicians talking about the issues in the sector and the, uh, the breadth of issues that need to be fixed um, and the process for real reform of early education. So we'll be facilitating that all across the country, um, early educators um, and United Workers Union members uh, pulling together and thinking about what needs that what needs to happen at that round table and making sure that we make the best use of our time uh, and the politicians' time towards outcomes. I see. That's that's amazing. Um. All right. Um. Helen, thank you so much for your time today. Um. That was actually quite a quite a short interview, but um. Thank you so much for talking to me. And yep. Love. Love you. Talk to you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. That was me speaking with Helen Gibbons about the recent Childhood Educators Rally and the demands of the child education workers. If you are a child educator yourself, you can join the United Workers Union by heading to bigsteps.org.au. Abolish the Monarchy Rally. Thursday, 22nd of September at 1.30pm. Assembling at Birurung Ma, opposite the Art Centre, and then marching through the city. Abolish the monarchy, return stolen land, stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Black mother at her doorstep, impale a brother on a tall fence, and love a brother shakes till he's got no life left. Organised by the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance and Community, a 3CR supporter. While the news cycle is being swamped by coverage of the Queen's death, Pakistan, a former British colony, remains under a literal deluge with the flood toll surpassing 1,500 people and a further 50 million displaced. Aryan Shirawa from 3CR Diaspora Blues spoke to Alia Ahmed, a Pakistani-Australian, about the relief work being done on the ground in Pakistan and why Australia needs to do more. So you've seen the harrowing images of locals being lifted into helicopters and floods washing away entire villages and destroying two million acres of crop. Thousands of people have lost their lives and 33 million people have been affected. Yet Australia has only pledged 2 million in aid, a number that our next guest, Alia, thinks is appalling. I reached out to Alia, a Pakistani-Australian, to identify the groups who are doing amazing work on the ground. We also hear her thoughts on why Australia needs to do more. 
Welcome to Diaspora Blues, Alia. Thank you so much for having me. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So my name's Alia. I'm um, on Wurundjeri country. My name's Alia Ahmed. I'm a Pakistani uh, Australian person living here in Narm. In a nutshell, what's happening in Pakistan? So what's been happening in Pakistan is something that hasn't just happened overnight. It's happened over particularly the last couple of months. Uh, a third of the country is currently underwater. Uh, over 1,300 people have been killed and 50 million people have been displaced. Um, and nearly 2 million homes have been destroyed because of devastating floods that have just ravaged through the entire country. I wonder if, you ha- if you've had any contact with family back home, and if so, what are they saying? Yeah, so um, my family is based in uh, Karachi, which is one of the port cities, um, but the province that it's from, the Sindh province, has been hit the hardest, uh, where 90% of its agriculture has been destroyed because of the flooding. And so uh, there have been efforts on the ground by, um, you know, family and friends and other people sort of within the community who have been doing lots of work on the ground to get sanitary kits out, to get food out, to do direct donations, to support people um, who have lost everything in these floods. Uh, it is the work from the people on the ground, um, including family and friends and other community members who have been sort of at the forefront of supporting people who have been affected by the floods. Mm. And there are people like me who want to support but don't know mm. who to send the support to because there's like all these international organisations and I'm sure they do good work, but knowing that there are folks on the ground that we can directly um, support would be really helpful. And that's something we're going to discuss at the end of it. You have a few places that we can mm. lend our support to. But I'm not sure if you saw, but the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, I think I'm pronouncing it right. So he's called on the rest of the world to help in the flood recovery. And then that got me thinking about what you said in our DM. So Mm -hmm. you said that class and race or the dynamics of class and race have contributed to Australia's response to the floods. Can you say more on that? Yeah, for sure. So... Um, When you think about the actual role that a country like Pakistan and Pakistan particularly has in terms of the climate crisis that we're all living in right now, they contribute less than a percent of global emissions. Um, And yet one in six people are affected by flooding. And this isn't new. And when you think about the countries that are actually emitting the most, it's the Western countries, it's the UK, it's Australia, it's Canada, it's the US. Um, the disproportionate impact that happens for the countries with the least and the countries who are contributing the least and yet are the most affected, you can see it on a clear racialized lens. Mm. Um, when you think about the the number of people who have been displaced by this current flooding in Pakistan, um, putting that into proportion, that's twice the population of Australia. So there are 50 million people affected in Pakistan and there are 25 million people in Australia or something like that. And yet the response from the Western world has been crickets. It's been completely silent. And in a country like Australia, the Australian government has donated, has said that they're going to donate $2 million for an aid, in quote-unquote aid, to Pakistan. That is 
quite frankly, an insult that per person in terms of if you think about how many people that has that have been affected, that's four cents per person. That's the price of an average house in Sydney when we know that nearly two million houses in Pakistan have been destroyed. Um, mm-hmm. Putting that into context, you think about how much people donated and how much the Australian government donated when the war in Ukraine first broke out. Comparatively, it's in- it's incredible the, to think about um, how much the Australian government donated, which was $65 million in humanitarian aid for the people who were affected um, by the war in Ukraine, when we know that six times more people have been displaced in Pakistan. Australia is clearly not doing their part or not doing it adequately, but there are communities on the ground who are doing the work. Who are these people? Yeah, so one um, group that I would really, really recommend um, to anyone who wants to support people who are you know, affected by the floods in Pakistan is Mahuari Justice. And that basically means menstrual justice. It's a group of um, women in Pakistan who have been just on the ground realizing that periods don't stop during a crisis like this. Uh, there are over 650,000 people who are currently pregnant in the middle of this disaster and over 70,000 people who are going to be going into labor in the next three months alone. Um, so Mahuari Justice has a GoFundMe page um, there uh, and they are collecting funds to be able to put together sanitary kits to provide any sort of um, childbirth support um, on the ground. They're in the communities. They're um, talking to people who are affected by flooding. um, And they're just really recognizing that people who are the most marginalized, um, you know, women and people from the trans community and children um, are, often left out in terms of the broad national, like the broad international sort of NGOs. Mm. Um, so they're on the ground speaking directly to these communities to help them. So you can follow them on Twitter at Mahwari Justice 22, which is M-A-H-W-A-R-I Justice. Um, and their GoFundMe page link is right there. And it's so easy to donate. And every single cent makes such a difference. That was Aryan from Diaspora Blues speaking with Alia Ahmed about the groups doing work on the ground. In Pakistan amid catastrophic flood devastation, the donation site Alia mentioned can be accessed via Twitter at Mawari Justice, M-A-H-W-A-R-I Justice. Since Aliyah spoke to 3CR, the death toll from the Pakistan floods have risen over to 1,500. You can catch Diaspora Blues on 3CR every Monday from 2.30 to 3pm. Up next, we've got a song for you this morning by Kobe D and featuring B Mood. This is This Life. Right, right. New number. 
known to kind of escape with these thoughts that I keep in my dorm. See, I never was a people person. I was always searching for a wasn't worth it. Nothing's ever certain in this life and earth. We always give a lot to people who just don't deserve it. Still, we gotta learn to love one another. Not divided by our race or our color. Cause in the end, we're our sisters and brothers and colors can't stop us from loving each other. I was born in a world so cold. But that's life as we've all been told. But is it living when the food is in your kitchen and the only way to get it is from drugs get sold? I was born with a silver spoon. Or a house that had five bedrooms. I was raised with a gummy sip goon to the rise of the sun and the fall of the moon. And this life seems oh so crazy. Sixteen, nearly had my first baby. Seventeen, selling dough from the house, putting tears in the eyes of the woman that made me. And this life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so cold. This life might one day break me. This life might take my soul. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy, and this life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so cold. This life might one day break me. This life might take my soul. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. No justice, no peace, no voice, no speech. No point in even trying to speak, and that's just showing ID to the pump police. They got us locked in chains. It all seems strange. So your brother goes in, then he leaves insane. Things will never be the same until he ends the cycle of the system's game of victim's pain. In the ghetto, never said much, was a quiet little fellow. All sung low, cool, calm and mellow. Tattered on his arm, was a red, black and yellow, where he wears his pride. Deep inside, an intelligent mind, just lost in time. All I really had was a beat and a rhyme, and a mother that did anything to watch him shine. This life of mine ain't the one that I thought it would be. Popping them bottles and smoking that weed. Things don't always be what they seem. This world I see ain't gonna last too long. And I must be a fool to really think that I could have changed it all with a song, but still I try. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so cold. This life might one day break me. This life might take my soul. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so cold. This life might one day break me. This life might take my soul. This life seems oh so crazy. This life seems oh so crazy. in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. The Soul Must Me Centre for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangwan present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheatre. 
All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey music ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. Tickets available via our website, sohamasmi.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. Well, the, sorry. So the song before that was called This Life by Kobe D featuring B Moon. And up next, will the Victorian government's big investment into public transport projects, like the proposed suburban rail route, really improve accessibility and quality of life for commuters? This week on City Limits, Kevin interviews Dr. John Stone, senior lecturer and researcher in transport planning at the University of Melbourne, and Elise Cunningham, coordinator of the Sustainable Cities Collective at the Friends of the Earth Melbourne. They discuss some of the John's research into improving the frequency and connecti- connectivity of buses in Melbourne's West and the models that are sustainable, accessible and financially efficient. They also talk about the Better Buses campaign run by Friends of Earth Melbourne's Sustainable Cities Collective, bringing this research together with personal stories and community organising to bring public transport in the West up to scratch. Better Buses is advocating for firm commitments for bus network improvements ahead of this year's November state election. Elise Cunningham is the Sustainable Cities Coordinator at Friends of the Earth and John Lectures in Transport up at Melbourne. John, you've got a different title these days, I think, haven't you? What's your title up there now? Oh, it would be properly formal. I'm a Senior Lecturer in Transport Planning. That's it. Part of that transport planning, of course, is planning a better public transport system for the western suburbs of Melbourne, and perhaps we'll start with that. Background to it and uh, what you come up with. Sure. We were very interested in whether you could apply some of the principles that are behind really good public transport around the world to Melbourne. And so, we, and that really means how do you make a system which is fast and connected and gives people options to get around the city? And we know that that works. It's worked in Auckland. It's worked in cities all around the world. And what we did was to just test what would happen and how much it would cost to have a public transport system that ran 10 minutes all day, every day, running in straight lines as much as possible along the grid of arterial roads in in the West. And what we found was that if you were able to get them up to speeds, which we don't achieve yet for Melbourne, you could actually run that service for the same money that we're spending on having 80 routes running in uh, in circles, basically, and in very, very low frequency. So you concentrate all your resources into, into particular corridors. And, and even um, that gives people a huge amount of accessibility. So we picked off a number of different locations with the activity centres around the and looked at how many people could actually get to those places. And we found that Sunday mornings you're increasing three, four, five times the the accessibility. So that means people can get to to part-time jobs. And 
we just found that the accessibility that you could achieve by this sort of approach was astounding for a very reasonable cost. Right, and um, a bit more detail about how would it work better? Well, what we do at the moment, the Department of Transport has an objective to say everybody should be living within 400 metres of a bus stop. So it doesn't matter whether the bus actually comes on a Sunday or after 6 o'clock. They give themselves a tick if you're near a bus stop. That really doesn't help anybody who has to get to work on time or has to get their kids to something. So instead what we've said is let's see if walking a little bit further but where you're walking to is a service that runs every 10 minutes, allows you to connect with another service, gets you to the station, gets you to the local activity centre. And that's where the where the savings are, that's where you get, make a, a great improvement is you, you concentrate those resources that we've spread very thinly into, uh, into, into corridors and some people may have to work a little bit further but we know from experience around the world and in Melbourne that people will work a little bit further if they're actually walking to a service that gets them where they want to go. Mm. And connectivity, you mentioned that, but that's the key to it, isn't it? I mean, it, yeah. the, the frustration yeah. of getting somewhere and the late Paul Mees used to talk about it. You got there as the bus left and it was 20 minutes till the next one or something well, or half an hour. If you're, um, if, you're, if you're lucky in the West, you know, 40 or 50 is, is typical. So, so yes, that's exactly right. Um, and Paul, and you mentioned Paul, his, his insights that we're really following up here. You can't actually link every place to every destination. That would be a, that's a car system or a taxi system. So the only way public transport is effective and efficient is if people are concentrated into different to the same journey but for different destinations. So you connect either bus to bus at an intersection or bus to train at a station and that's how you get to choose all the many possible places you might want to go. So it's the frequency and the connectivity that give people the freedom to, to move around. And, of course, if it's a 10-minute service, then it's not so bad if you just miss it as much as if it's a 50-minute well, yeah. service. Or... Yeah, so a 10-minute service, the average waiting time for a connection is five minutes, and that doesn't add up to a journey that you know is two hours instead of 20 minutes in the car, which mm. is the current problem. It does make a big difference. I know I re- occasionally go to a friend's place down at Bentley for lunch, and it's a 10-minute train service, so you don't worry about the timetable too much. You just go and you know there's going to be a train within pretty short time. Yeah. And the government, interestingly, the government is setting up a bus reform plan and it, it recognises these principles. Just what we're showing is how, even in the next term of government, you could actually start to give people that, that service. And what we're wanting is a, a bold commitment from the government to, to get on with that, what, what they know would work. Would it require more buses on the fleet? Well, that's the interesting thing. It's not going to require a lot more buses. We reckon you could do the first stage with an additional expenditure on bus services, which would bring the West up to the the Melbourne average. So it's a commitment of $30 or $50 million over the next term of government per year. And when they're spending 100 times that on suburban rail loop at the other side of Melbourne, we can see that this is something that the West really needs and is part of bringing the West up to a standard of public transport that people have in other parts of Melbourne. Indeed, Victoria is talking about having all its new buses being electric buses anyway by 2025, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's no new diesel buses bought after 2025. So it's a, it's a good start, but we need to go both faster on that 
to, to meet our climate objectives. But interestingly, bringing in electric buses gives you another way of saying, here we are, we're doing something new with buses. Because for many people, they've had experience all their lives of buses being things that don't really work for them. So to get them to take another look, we need to be saying, here's something new. And so electrifying at the same time as you bring in these new fast, frequent, connected networks, that's where you get people to say, oh, yeah, I'll give buses a chance. And and then they can you know, give up that third, fourth or fifth car at $20,000 a year and put that money into other more important things. Yeah, I mean, people want it. I mean, a recent YouGov poll showed that 70% of Australians, this is nationwide, want diesel buses scrapped. Mm, and people want... You know, Climate Council research just came out last week saying how much people want governments to invest in public transport. So this idea that you get votes by building roads for people to get stuck on in their car is really out of date and people need to you know, catch up with the fact that people in the suburbs really are desperate for an alternative. Right, yeah, and Elise, of course, you're the Sustainable Cities Coordinator at FOE. Where does FOE come into the picture here? I am, and hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. And I just want to acknowledge that I'm joining from Wurundjeri, Moirurung country today. So FO comes into the picture, you know, we're doing the community organising side of things and really running this campaign out in the community to gather those personal stories about what people are experiencing when it comes to the bus network and to lobby the government to show that better buses are needed across the West. Yeah, in fact, on a recent Friends of the Earth Dirt radio program, I heard a couple of people you'd obviously um, talked to out there talking about their personal experiences of public transport in the western suburbs, and it sounded quite horrific. You know, they almost couldn't go anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. So we had a couple of people on the Dirt radio show. One was from Point Cook and one was from the Brimbank area. We also spoke to people in Sunshine. We went out flyering a couple of weekends ago and we were chatting to people in the community. And it's funny, you're talking about wait times. And, you know, as you said, shorter wait times just make things a lot less anxiety-provoking for people. And if, you know, you miss a bus on a 10-minute frequency network, it's not as big of a deal. One of the people that we spoke to in Sunshine was saying that she worked in the city and she has to take four buses, I think it was, to get to work takes two hours each way so that's you know four hours a day on public transport and she also has to get her child to school by bus as well and she was saying that her daughter actually got in trouble at school recently because she missed the bus and then the next bus was such a long wait away that she was quite late to school you know and this is something that parents are experiencing and this is a regular sort of thing it can be really damaging you know to their lives and you know her daughter got in trouble for for no good reason so yeah, there's a lot of stories like that that are coming out of these conversations that we're having in the community. I spoke to someone in Hoppers Crossing, which is, I think, probably one of the areas that are least serviced by public transport at the moment, who is a school teacher, and he was saying that there's a lot of schools without public transport out in the area. And this is in Wyndham, where, you know, the area is bigger than Geelong now. And he was saying that there's 12 kids born every day in Wyndham, and there's simply just, you know, not the public transport infrastructure in place to kind of match that growth. So, yeah, you know, buses are something that can be done very quickly and easily and cheaply, so it just makes sense, really. And in terms of the campaign, how's it going? How, what effect are you having out there at the moment? I think it's going really well. We're definitely hearing buses on the agenda with more and more community groups that we're speaking to, and that's at 
not just community groups, like buses are coming onto the agenda at all different levels of people that we're speaking to, whether that be grassroots or bigger organisations as well. And there's huge support across all the different councils that we're working with as well, massive amounts of support for better buses. And um, we've had some really sort of exciting events happen over the past little while and we've got really good ones coming up as well. So we want to sort of be giving people opportunities through, you know, meetings and forums and lobbying to put pressure ahead of labour. So we'll be having community forums with a fun angle as well, I think, because we really want to show that this is a campaign that is for everyone, whether you're a bus user or environmentalist alike. It's something that really benefits a lot of people. And just on the um, job side of thing as well, you know, they've got the job forum sort of thing on at the moment. I can't remember what it's called. But one of the councillors in the Brimbank area that we were talking to was saying that that really should have been sort of a jobs and public transport conference co-combined because, you know, we're experiencing this skill shortage. But out in the West, there's so many people who are willing to work and desperate for work, but they don't have the public transport infrastructure in place near their home that can get them to work. So they're kind of just stuck at home. And if it's people who can't afford a car, then they don't really have a choice. So it solves so many issues because better buses isn't just a matter of environmental concern. It's really a matter of social equity. Yeah, and you mentioned hoppers crossing places like that where even car travel is very difficult because of the congestion on roads and getting onto main highways and things. I mean, people would love to have a, a decent public transport system, wouldn't they? Well, yeah, exactly. And one of the things that Iqbal, who I spoke to in Hopper's Crossing, he said that he would love to see designated bus lanes because that would solve a lot of the traffic congestion issues. And, yeah, it's just crazy that, you know, there's people out there that are... There's families that will have two, three or more cars in their home because it's just their only sort of option. And it's a really common problem in those big developments, especially where people were sold homes and promised a train station or whatever it is, and now there's just no transport infrastructure at all. And if you're living in a home where, you know, you can have up to three generations of people if you've got someone whose parents live with them and then their kids, you know, turn 17 and they want to have a car, you've got three cars for one household. And a lot of these families are on lower incomes as well, so... It's just becoming increasingly unaffordable as we see the cost of living rising, you know, petrol $2 a litre. Like, how can people afford that when they're coming from lower-income families? And so bad for the environment, of course. Are you getting any reaction from the members of parliament out there? Uh, We've had a few meetings with them, and we've got some candidates who are really, really supportive of the campaign as well. So I think it's definitely coming on the agenda But the truth of things is that a lot of the West is pretty safe labour seats at the moment, so that's sort of why communities have been overlooked for for so long. But I think, as we saw in the federal election, there was a swing towards the teals and kind of away from labour. So I think it really is time that labour starts to act and, you know, prioritises the West in their policy because their needs have been overlooked for too long. And I can tell you the people that I've spoken to are really fed up of being left behind, so... Yeah, I think people are starting to get a bit nervous and I think it could be a really good year for seeing some of these promises come out of Labor in the election. John, anything to add at this stage on that subject? No, I think what's really important is just that people get out and support the campaign in any way that they can because really, as Elise says, that's what's needed to get from the tentative plans that the Minister, Ben Carroll, has announced in previous years to actually some really big, bold action. And so the ground is really there. I think Ben Carroll wants to make his name in 
public transport and buses is really the way he can do that in the next term. So it's all really set up for them to actually take on this challenge. Rightio, John, any comments on the current controversy going on around the loop? Forget the Herald Sun one, which is purely to get Dan Andrews, but there's been some more rational arguments around the age, for instance, about the real problems with it and the cost-benefit ratio not looking too good. Yeah, I think whenever you develop plans sort of up the, the pointy end of the plane and don't really think them through and then announce them and then work on the detail later, you, you're always going to come up with problems. And you know, it is really great that they're talking about suburban public transport. You know, that's been the issue that needed to be on the table for a long time. But for me, the question is really whatever you're going to build and whatever the long-term plan is, what are you going to do in the 10, 15, 20 years until these things come online? And that's why the bus option to the west that we're talking about, but it's true right across the suburbs of Melbourne that people really need something that gets them out of their cars in the short term. And, and then you do need to look closely at some of these big projects Who's actually going to benefit with a heavy rail loop around the city? It's only going to be particular focus points that get the benefit where many of the rest of suburbia is still going to be left in car dependent. So it really does need to be a, a closer look at exactly where the money is going and what would be the best way to get what is an absolutely vital need that's great that the government has recognised if you can just give the listeners the web links to, to Friends of the Earth uh, so that people can get in touch with Elise and join the campaign. Yep. Elise, what is the um, contact? It's melbournefo.org slash transport or I'm also happy for people to reach out to me via email. So it's E-L-Y-S-E dot Cunningham at foe.org.au. We're always looking for people to contribute in various ways. We have collective meetings weekly so, yeah, it would be really great. If anyone wants to be involved, please get in touch. All right, look, we'll leave it there, but thanks for your time, both of you, this morning, and, and good luck with that campaign. That was Kevin from City Limits speaking to Dr John Stone, researcher at University of Melbourne, and Elise Cunningham from Sustainable Cities Campaign from Friends of the Earth, talking about better buses in Melbourne's West to find more about the City Limits weekly meetings, you can head on to melbournefoe.org.au forward slash transport or you can email directly to Elise Cunningham, E-L-Y-S-E dot C-U-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M at foe.org.au. AU. You can also catch CD Limits from Wednesdays 9am. Now we've got a song for you by Archie Roach featuring Emma Donovan called Hush Now Baby. She made us glad And when times were hard And times were bad 
She'd always chase away after his And she say, hush now babies, don't you cry Things look better by and by Cry your eyes and don't look blue Don't smile and don't feel sad And there's not much for mom or dad Cause come what may, there's plenty for you When I was only six years old On a winter's night That was so cold And I could hear a raging storm She took the blankets from their bed And wrapped them round each one of us instead And gave us all a kiss And we were born And then she say Hush now babies Don't you cry Things look better By and by Dry your eyes And don't look blue Keep on smiling For mom or dad Cause come what may There's plenty here for you One time when Christmas came around She cooked a bird that weighed About three pounds And seven children Had a shed. She gave our dad a weary smile, held him close and close to rise a while. And she seemed to say, Hey, silent face. And then she said, Now, babies, don't you cry. Things look better by and by. Dry your eyes and don't look blue. Just keep on smiling, don't feel sad. If there's not much for mom or dad. Come on, baby, there's plenty here for you. Now I'm a man, now I am grown. I've got these lovely children of my own. I remember mama's words today. 
That was Hush Now Babies by Archie Roach, featuring Emma Donovan. Up next, a report from James Berry from Asia Pacific Current on the political situation in Iraq. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR. Uh, unrest and the threat of civil war has occurred in Iraq, with more than 30 people killed during protests between supporters of the Sado movement and members of the government and other groups within Iraq. Joining us to explain this situation is Firas Naji. Firas is a scholar specialising in Iraqi and Middle Eastern affairs. Welcome, Firas. Uh, thank you. So before we talk about the events of this week, can you tell us how we got here about last year's election, what Muqtada Assad, the movement was aiming for the Iraqi parliament, and why they withdrew their elected members? Uh, sure. Um, we need to look at the, the current events from two perspectives, I guess. Uh, so on the surface, the conflict is basically between Shia Islamist faction, all from within the regime. There's the al-Sadr movement, with a populist leader and strong popular base, especially at lower economic uh, base. He has one leg in government and another in the protest movement. Al-Sadr wants to change the way Iraq was ruled since 2003. Since then, Iraq was ruled based on what we call consociational democracy, which is a power-sharing arrangement uh, between all parties to divide political power and state revenues and make decisions by consensus. However, this uh, system failed miserably and resulted in massive corruption, lack of services, and ended in uh, state collapse when ISIS invaded uh, and controlled one-third of the country in 2014. So al-Sadr wants to have a new system, which is a majority rule system, so he can form effective government and deliver on his promises to his people. On the other side, there's the uh, rest of the Islamist groups, which they call themselves the Coordination Framework, who oppose uh, Sadr's agenda and wants to maintain the status quo. In the early elections in October 2021, Sadr was the uh, main winner. He won 73 out of, 29, uh, out of 329 seats, which is big in Iraqi context. And he managed to form... A majority coalition with his uh, Sunni and Kurdish partners, but the his Shia opponents, they uh, put all sorts of obstacles trying to stop him from this, which included threatening his uh, partners, uh, hitting them with missiles, uh, uh, protests, 
uh, and eventually they managed to influence the high court which uh, came with a resolution to change the rules of uh, electing president. So initially, electing a president required uh, absolute majority with a new rule uh, that required two-thirds uh, attendance, uh, which the al-Sadr and his partners failed to achieve. So that ended up to uh, uh, stopping the parliament and paralyzing the whole process, political process. Now, rightly or wrongly, al-Sadr thought he can better attack his opponents uh, and put more pressure on them if he uh, leaves parliament and uh, go to the street with, uh, through protest. And that's why he uh, ordered his MPs to resign from parliament. Now, this is on the surface, as I say. There's a, a more deeper perspective, uh, which is practically created this whole crisis, because Iraq is currently going through a transition process, which was marked by the uh, 2019 protests, uh, which resulted in a resignation, first ever resignation of a sitting government, and this early uh, 2021 uh, uh, election. And also, it put pressure on al-Sadr to take his political reform uh, more seriously. So there is a decline in the Islamist ideology and a progression of uh, civil movement. This is the kind of the context of the current event. Thank you, Firas. And uh, moving on from that, can you talk about the events of this week? What prompted Muqtada Sada to make his statement that he was withdrawing from politics? Was this meant to rally his supporters? And what caused Sada to tell his supporters to go home? This is a bit more complex. <laughs> Now, al-Sadr stems his authority, uh, which is a mixed religious and political, from his uh, late father, uh, Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr, who is a uh, renowned Shia scholar during Saddam, killed by Saddam. He's so-called a merger. A merger is kind of like a, a reference point, a religious reference point where all Shia should have a merger, unless they are a merger themselves or Ayatollah. So when his father died, he has to follow a living merger, uh, who was the Ayatollah Qadim al-Hayri, because his father uh, advised his followers and him to follow al-Hayri if he dies. Now, the relationship between al-Sadr, uh, Muqtada al-Sadr, and al-Hayri, his merger, wasn't great, but it was a working relationship. So uh, al-Hayri gave... Uh, Muqtada Sadr, some sort of a, a cover, a guide, a religious guide of authority. Now, suddenly at the height of the current crisis, when his uh, Sadr followers were occupying the parliament, Qadim um, al-Hari, the Marja, uh, suddenly retires and asks his followers, uh, presumably the Sadrists, to follow uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, the, the Iranian supreme leader. Uh, he also attacked al-Sadr, uh, that his policies were divisive and also advised him not to lead people using his family's name. So uh, taken, uh, you know, by surprise, uh, but also he had to uh, reluctantly withdraw from politics, as father because he had to follow his merger advice. So uh, that kind of escalated the scene. Uh, and this was considered by his followers as like some sort of a d dirty conspiracy by Iran and th their followers. Uh, 
and the angry mob uh, or protesters, you know, who were in the parliament, they attacked the uh, presidential palace and occupied it. Now, during these events, uh, some cyberist, uh protesters, they were killed, allegedly by pro-Iranian militias. So that all led to escalation of violence. Uh, and and, and uh, al-Sadr, Al-Sadr's own militia, they entered the green zone, and, and basically a, a full-on war happened for 24 hours, where different factions of al-Hashid, or the People's Mobilization Forces, they were attacking each other at the heart of the green zone, uh, while the Iraqi security forces were playing peacekeepers. You know? So that's what happened. And this is where uh, uh, al-Sadr intervened and called, called on his followers to withdraw and end all protests and, and violence. Um, continuing with the topic of Marjayat or the Marjayat Taqlid in Shia Islam, it was significant that Grand Ayatollah Ha'iri, uh, he, he directed his followers to go to Iranian leader Ayatollah Khamenei, who in many ways is a political enemy of Muqtadir al-Sadr. Do you have any comments about why that was, considering it was a, such an unexpected move? Yeah, well... well there are like the, the, most of the people, like especially the Sadrists, you know, that they uh, consider this, as I said, it's like uh, some sort of a conspiracy. Even Al Sadr hinted in his uh, uh, speech or uh, withdrawal speech that this was under uh, uh, Iranian influence. So Al Ha'ari did not act this on on his own, but rather by uh, Iranian uh, influence. And as you mentioned, <laughs> it's a, whole, a complete change of uh, direction, uh, because the Al-Sadrists, uh, in general, they have a strong anti-Iranian sentiment, uh, and, and to ask them to follow the, uh, as a religious leader, the uh, supreme uh, leader of the Iranian revolution, you know, like it's, uh, it's some sort of an insult. So, so yeah, so it's, it's really interference between politics and religion to, to the max. Yes, and uh, just for listeners to understand, the Iranian leader follows a political system where, uh, which is quite different, where clerics, their role in, in politics is a little bit different to other streams of Shia political thinking, uh, but it's, it's very specific to everyone, more or less has to follow the Iranian leader, whether they're an Iranian national or not. Um, just moving on a little bit, Firas, the living situation in Iraq has been deteriorating slowly over time, with the government only able to supply up to four hours of electricity in major cities, despite Iraq's vast resources. Do you see the current political arrangement as able to sustain itself in the short to medium term? Uh, not at all. Like, the legitimacy of the Iraqi regime was severely uh, compromised uh, in the eyes of most Iraqis since the state failed, uh, failed against ISIS in 2014. And since then, the protests increased, became more violent, and, and uh, a massive uh, 2019 youth protest happened, and it was uh, the most effective in causing the thin leg- legitimacy of the current region. So, uh, also, uh, Ali Alawi, is the uh, resigned Minister of Finance, just recently described the state bureaucracy as zombies that keep performing after their death. So, uh, now, with all what's happening, uh, happening, the stalled political process for nearly a year, a non-functioning parliament, uh, and tainted ju- judiciary, you know, corrupted government, so it's all uh, re- uh, not quite a recipe for a stable or sustainable situation. 
And finally, some commentators have been talking about the risk of an intrasectarian civil war amongst the Shia political movements in Iraq. Do you think that this is an accurate assessment? Well, as I explained, there is currently, we're seeing the, the, the beginning of clashes between Shia factions, but um, which, which might escalate and definitely escalate, uh, could escalate and, and became uh, more worsening. But I don't think it's the sort of civil war like as we know it. Like if you take, for example, the Kurdish civil war in 1990s, where the two Kurdish factions uh, lasted uh, warring each other for years. Uh, and I, I think this is mainly because the pro-Iranian militias, they don't have uh, like real popular support and they can withhold territory. And also, as I mentioned, because sectarianism uh, is on the decline. Uh, so I believe in Iraq there are more people interested in, in, in a united Iraq than to those who are interested in, in a divided one. Viras, thank you for your time. Uh, it's been most informative. Thanks for having me, Jane. Thanks to James Barry for that report. You can catch James on Saturdays from 9am on Asia Pacific Currents, produced by Australia Asia Worker Links. APC provides updates on labour campaigns from the Asia Pacific region. You're on 3CR Breakfast. Stay tuned. A soulful reimagining of 1890s Melbourne. Presented by La Mama, Measure of a Moment explores the loving bond between a young bohemian writer and a troubled musician coming to terms with the changing world and the challenges of addiction and death. With comedy and light, an original score and live acoustic music, the ensemble of eight actors urge you to take up a seat. Running from 28th September to October 2nd, go to lamama.com.au, a 3CR supporter. The single most important film on the Aboriginal political struggle in the last 50 years. Ningla Ana is the inside story of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, a gripping first-hand account of an iconic protest action and the young radicals who took control and demanded justice. Rediscover this iconic documentary and a momentous period for First Nations activism in this brand new restoration. Screening Cinema Nova, Carlton, from Friday the 30th of September to Sunday the 2nd of October. A 3CR supporter. Under the Disability Standards for Accessible Public Transport introduced in 2002, Public transport was meant to be fully wheelchair accessible by the end of 2022. Today marks 101 days until that deadline, but Melbourne's tram network is still predominantly inaccessible, with only 15% of trams stops having both a low-floor tram and a level-access platform. The Transport for All campaign ran by a coalition of organisations, including the Disability Resources Centre, is pushing the Victorian government to upgrade the transport network and allow people with disabilities to commute independently and reliably. Jacob Gamble brings you this story.
It's a familiar sound, one that thousands of people hear every day as they use trams to get around Melbourne. But for wheelchair users and other people with disabilities, the tram network remains largely inaccessible, leaving many people unable to travel easily and independently. So who are the people being left behind by Melbourne's tram network? And what is the state government doing about it? Hi, I'm Martin Leckie. Martin Leckie is an associate at the University of Melbourne and a wheelchair user. He's been lobbying the state government for wheelchair accessible public transport by trying to board the tram at his local tram stop for every sitting day of parliament. Just a regular person who uh, would like some access to the public transport, in particular trams. So we're protesting about well, the lack of access to trams for people in wheelchairs or other mobility devices or for anyone who needs easy access to trams like older people um, or people with prams or anything. It'll make it much easier for anyone to get on if they have a uh, low-floor tram with a level access stop. That's what we need to get onto a tram if you're in a wheelchair. Um, And at the moment... Only about 30% of the tram stops in Melbourne have level access. And uh, and then only about 30% of trams are low floor. So where they come together is only about 15% of cases. So according to the transport standards that were brought in in 2002, like 20 years ago, the... There was an agreement by all governments and, and the operators that they would make the system accessible over time and that by 2022, the end of this year, it would be 100% accessible for trams, for um, tram stops. But it's been very frustrating. They haven't followed through on that and now we're still only at 30%. So that's why we're fed up and... We're protesting and we're asking for them to make a commitment to rapidly increase the rate of building the stops. So they were supposed to be at 90% accessible in 2017 and 100% accessible at the end of this year, but they're still only at 30% for tram uh, tram stops and about the same for trams. So, yeah, they've failed to abide by, I mean, a succession of state governments has failed to abide by that agreement um, and they've, they've been successive governments have promised to do better but uh, they've actually got slower over time There's the rate of building the stops has actually slowed to a crawl so only over the last few years only two, two per year on average have been completed when um, of the total number of stops is about 1,700. Uh, yeah, we've still got another 1,500 still left to make accessible. And at two per year, it's going to, you know, take, uh, you know, a long time. How has this issue affected you personally uh, in your day-to-day life? Well, I've been travelling into... 
Melbourne University where I work from this is where I live in in Carlton North I um, I walk there usually uh, well in my wheelchair that is um, and for th- I've been doing that for 30 years and I, as I as I go there I watch the trams go by me and that's very frustrating uh, I mean you could imagine you've been promised that they're going to make, make this accessible and then you think oh well and then you st- for 30 years you watch the trams go by it's uh, yeah so it, it really does affect me and makes it take much longer to get there and uh, to go in the wet and cold and um, I mean but that's just one place to go I mean all over Melbourne we rely on trams to get around whether it be for work or education or socialising I mean going out with the family and so on and we're so reliant on trams in Melbourne that it really is restricting uh, for for all of us with a disability who need that um, level of access. Disability activists have been calling for greater access since the 1980s, and yet after more than 40 years, only 15% of trams are fully wheelchair accessible. Even with the promise of being able to board a tram, many access needs are yet to be considered. I can't actually use public transport because it is so inaccessible. Jessie Hooper is a youth disability advocate and a wheelchair user. Yeah, so I've got quite a few disabilities that, um, so, you know, I've got my visible disability, which is my wheelchair, but I've got quite a few invisible disabilities, being autistic, um, having a lot of sensory issues with being autistic. Um, and my neurological condition actually has kind of limited me a lot more in what I can do with my senses and what goes on around me. Um, so it's actually kind of been helpful partially going deaf because the amount of sound around me can completely overwhelm. Um, too many people, I've really actually enjoyed COVID because there wasn't too many people around me. I actually went on, there's four trams in the city at the moment that are accessible and I went on it for the first time last week and had a massive panic attack because of all the people on it. Um, so in that way, it still wasn't accessible, yet I was still able to get a wheelchair on, but we forget about all the sensory disabilities that often come for people with wheelchairs, um, with a lot of other disabilities that you've got, a lot of sensory things going on that can contribute to anxiety and all these other things. Um, so, yeah, it was actually, it was really cool being able to go on a tram. It was three years since I've been on a tram, but I completely shut down because it was a complete overload and was absolutely terrifying for me, not to mention that um, the wheelchair actually completely slipped around and I actually kept, we had my carer and me um, holding onto my chair and all the um handrails because I just kept slipping up and down the tram the entire time. There were suddenly all these people around me. There was all this noise. Everyone's talking. Everyone's, this, you know, the tram lights. Thank goodness they weren't flickering as well. Otherwise, that could have caused a seizure as well. Um, but the tram lights were going on. 
we had the sound, we had the everyone's kind of talking, everyone's, you know, trying to figure out where they're stopping, where I'm stopping, where the care is trying to talk to me at the same time. I'm trying to focus, I'm not making my wheelchair roll. Yeah. There's so much going on. And that also is a complete, you know, it, it's inaccessible in that factor too, because while we've gone on, there's so many other things that you need to think about to actually make something accessible. The Transport for All Coalition was formed at the end of 2021 and it represents an alliance of cross-sector organisations. Ali Scott is the campaign's coordinator for the Disability Resources Centre here in Melbourne. So it includes aged care organisations, it includes environment agencies, it includes disability organisations and unions and individual campaigners who've all come together with one aim, and that is to make our public transport system truly universally accessible. Accessibility to public transport is absolutely essential for inclusion. And what this means is that if you can't access public transport, you can't necessarily engage with education, with jobs, with community. You can't participate in everything that our world has to offer. And so it's unacceptable that a significant um, part of our community is not able to get from A to B. So what we're seeing statistically is that um, job um, employment levels for people with disabilities is very low compared to the rest of the community. And this is partly because people can't reliably get there, reliably and independently reach a destination. It also means that people are impacted, their mental health is impacted because um, people are not freely able to go out and do things. We know, for instance, there's one campaigner who talks about having to book a cab two weeks in advance in order to be able to attend anything. And then you can't necessarily assume that this will turn up on time. That's no way to engage in life as a regular basis. So our public transport system is currently discriminatory because it's stopping at least a quarter and possibly as much as 40% of our population fully participating. So this has been obviously an issue, as you said, for about 40 years now. Why do you think the state government hasn't installed these level platforms or secured these low-floor trams? It's very interesting. We're often asking ourselves why this ha we haven't seen a budgetary commitment to achieve the infrastructure upgrades that our government is legally required to deliver. Um, and we think that it's simply that there have been other priorities, other infrastructure priorities, and what, what they're not prioritising is inclusion. And there has been no research on the social return on investment that would be seen by... Um, delivering full participation to everybody in the community. There's been no research into the economic benefits of engagement. So instead what we're looking at is um, uh, big flash projects rather than fully 
um, 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 rather than upgrading our current system so that everybody can use it. In terms of the future of public transport, technology is offering us some really interesting solutions. So it might be possible, not so very far down the line, for, for people to be able to approach a stop and anticipate a tram and know that this is driven by somebody who they've met before or somebody who they know is going to facilitate um, or support people getting on and off the train if, if that's required. Um, there's a lot that can be done in terms of uh, our individual um, technological engagements with services which would definitely make it feel safer. So what's happening at the moment is we don't just have physical lack of access, we also have um, an issue where people um, are, are fearful um, because there's a level of unpredictability and uncertainty about uh, about what kind of tram is going to going to uh, appear and what the response of the driver will be to the fact that somebody has access requirement. And that uncertainty is very stressful. So I think alleviating that degree of uncertainty through uh, creative application of technology will be an, an amazing breakthrough. In the 2022 budget, the Victorian government allocated $157.8 million to boosting accessibility on public transport, but only committed to making six tram stops along Latrobe Street in the CBD wheelchair accessible. This has been um, something that we have raised consistently with government um, throughout not just the last term, but multiple terms of government. Sam Hibbins is the Victorian Greens spokesperson for transport. He says that while these new investments in public transport accessibility are welcome, they don't go far enough. Uh, in the budget, there was just a handful of uh, tram stops slated for upgrades. You know, next to nothing, barely an improvement, not even an improvement on last term, in fact, even a reduction. Um, and so they're just not putting their money where their mouth is. Uh, and it's really, it's, it's really disappointing. So... Um, I think this campaign is really important. I mean, obviously, you know, people with a disability have been campaigning on this for decades, um, but I really think this campaign is um, really important, really powerful tool to getting the government to actually start investing in, in upgrading tram stops and, and trams as well. And the total cost, which I think the, the Auditor General, um, you know, looked at, I think was in around $2 billion or what have you. I mean, that's next to nothing compared to some of these other big transport projects that are actually happening around. So it's actually a small, just a, it's actually quite a small amount when you compare it to other major transport projects. Um, in terms of uh, who would who would this actually um, benefit? It's actually a very wide a wide number of society. I mean, the fact is, a modern tram network should have accessible tram stops for everyone. And so, it, yes, it's people with a disability, but it's also people with general mobility issues, the elderly. Um, it's certainly a, a, a hot topic for many of the elderly um, public housing tenants in the Pran electorate. It's mothers with, or parents, I should say, with prams. It's um, you know people doing the shopping, got the shopping trolley. It's all those things that mean that uh, those people are unable to access our tram network. Um, and so this would have massive benefits uh, for a lot of people. The reality is uh, a modern, world-class public transport network should be accessible to all. Uh, it goes, it's part and parcel in having a public transport network. It's been neglected for far too long, and it's time the government actually invested to, to upgrade it. 
Thanks to Martin Leckie, Jesse Hooper, Ellie Scott and Sam Hibbins for their generous time and contributions to the story. If you want to get involved in the Transport for All campaign, head to the Disability Resource Centre website at drc.org.au. You can look for Disability Advocacy and join Transport for All and sign up. There will be two final solidarity protests happening today. First, Martin Lackey will attempt to board a tram at his local, inaccessible tram stop number 118 on the corner of Ligon and Picton Streets in Carlton at 12.30pm. At the second, Jess Kapuschinki Evans will also be attempting to use public transport from her local inaccessible stop number 33 on the corner of Separation Street and High Street in Northcote at 1pm. You can also write to your local candidates for the upcoming state election asking them to commit to greater funding for accessible public transport. There's also another rally happening tomorrow called the Warriors of the Aboriginal Res- uh, sorry, the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance have organized a rally called Abolish the Monarchy, Sovereignty Never Ceded. It's happening the meeting tomorrow at one thirty PM at Berang Mar and marching to Parliament House. To find more about this event, you can search Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance on Facebook. And that is all for today. Um, thank you to all our listeners this morning. And next week, I'll be back hosting with Jacob from Curing the Air, while Claudia and Ella will be back in October. Thank you for listening and stick around for S- Stick Together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.